bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to gather together like this in peace and quiet and freedom to learn your word. Help us to be thankful for all the things that we take for granted, Father, including this most wonderful thing that a lot of people in a lot of countries can't do in freedom and in comfort. We ask, Father, that you help us concentrate tonight, that you help us put ourselves aside and be filled with your Spirit and listen and learn to what your Spirit has to guide us with on evangelism this evening. We ask also, Father, that you bless our families and make it a special holiday season, especially in terms of eternal things. And Father, most of all, we are grateful and thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who once for all left heaven, became a man, and died for our sins on that cross. So that whoever repents and trusts in him will be saved forever by your amazing grace. Father, please bless this message. Again, guide us and teach us as we humbly submit to your word. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, effective evangelism. Uh, first, I want to thank Pastor Collins for the chance to fill in for him while he's on vacation this week. And I'm very excited to uh, get into this topic, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, because it's kind of been a long time coming where God's been teaching me certain things and, and you know, let me focus on my gift more. And uh, just piecing things together is kind of the best way I can describe it. And it's been a wonderful uh, journey and, uh, and effective, thus the title, an effective way to witness uh, as far as my own experience, and that's what I want to share tonight. So, uh, In this study, we're going to see the biblical role of the law, capital L, the biblical role of the law in evangelism, and a real-life example of leading someone to repentance and faith in Christ. First, we will introduce why and how even Jesus used the law to lead people to salvation through faith in him. And then we'll see more from the apostles on this and how they lived out the Great Commission in this way. So first, before we jump into that part of it on the law, a little introduction explaining some of my concerns today, just, um, you know, in evangelism. A problem that we see with contemporary Christianity and therefore with today's evangelism, is that it's lopsidedly focused on God's love without going into the inevitable results of God's justice upon those who refuse to believe. God loves us far beyond our comprehension, but unless someone humbly receives his loving offer through Christ, as in John 1.12, when it says to receive him, those who receive him, it means to take hold of him, Unless someone receives Christ in that way, then that person remains under God's judgment. And it's almost not even fair to not tell someone about that if you have the opportunity. It's almost like Christians today say to unbelievers, God loves you, so don't worry about anything. And what they're doing is they're telling half of the story. They're not even telling what their role is, what's even commanded of them if they want to be saved. It's actually misleading and incomplete. So there's something each and every person needs to reconcile between themselves and God if they want to be saved. For example, does the Bible say that all men are going to be saved in the end? Of course not, right? If you read your Bible, you know it does not say that. In fact, it's probably the minority that's going to be saved. And Jesus talked about hell a lot more than he talked about heaven. Just read the Gospels. So for us, 
as evangelists, as witnesses, passing on his message. For us to bring up God's love without bringing up the reality of one's situation as a sinner before a righteous and holy God, that's doing someone a great disservice. We're not telling them the whole truth. And if a person doesn't really believe they're a sinner and they don't realize they can't save themselves, how are they going to see the need to turn to Christ from the heart? They will not. They might take Christ or use the name of Christ on the side because they fit in better with their family or to cover their butts, so to speak, but they will not turn to Christ in their heart as their Lord and their Savior unless they see they really do have a need before the righteous God of the universe. They will remain blind to the truth about eternal life and death. And they will be robbed of the opportunity to see and experience the love of God. Just think about that for a minute. They'll be robbed of the opportunity to see the love of God clearly. Unless they know the whole truth, the whole story. I got the chance to speak with Pastor the other day before he left on vacation. And we were kind of just talking about this. And I just want to kind of summarize what he said regarding this. He said, uh, people are being robbed of the chance to love God as they should. For example, he who is forgiven much, loves much, in Luke 7.47. He who is forgiven much, loves much. What if someone doesn't know they need to be forgiven, or they have a lot to be forgiven of? They're not going to experience and see the amazing grace and love of God. He said, if people don't come to see their own depravity and how much they're forgiven of, they won't be set free by the love of God. In so many words. Again, if people don't come to see their own depravity and how much they're forgiven of, they won't be set free by the love of God. They won't enjoy that grace you so want them to see and understand. So let's remember what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, by the way, stated about his preaching of the gospel on his missionary trips. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. And we're going to turn to a lot of Scripture tonight. Uh, we don't have too many slides. We have them here and there, but we'll turn to a lot of verses as examples of this uh, subject, this focus tonight. So we're going to see here what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, stated about his own preaching of the gospel on his missionary trips. So I'm reminding you that this is evangelism in action. All right, It's not the letters to the churches that were largely instructions to the believers. As Pastor would say, forensic. Looking back. This here in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, how he preached the gospel. So, between this active preaching of the gospel we see here and Jesus giving the gospel throughout the gospels, what better way to learn how to uh, effectively evangelize? Look at Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice, what does Paul write here? He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. This isn't even Paul's, Paul saying this. He's writing this down. He's saying that God commands that all people everywhere repent. Why is that? He, he says it right in the same verse, right? Because of the coming day that he's going to judge the world. 
there's judgment right on the horizon. Right on the horizon. And you know, it's not right on the horizon for everybody, isn't it? Whether it's the rapture, whether it's the day of your death, as quick as life goes, we're promised no amount of days even. Judgment is right on the horizon. So God commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Well, it says because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Put those two things together. There's a very real danger unbelievers need to know about and with a sense of urgency. There's a very real danger unbelievers need to know about. If you care about somebody, right, wouldn't you pull them aside? Let's say you saw they were in a dangerous situation. I don't know what it might be. Wouldn't you pull them aside and say, hey, um, did you see this train coming? You know, uh, do, you, do you see the writing on the wall in this situation in your business or in your family? You might want to do something about it. Right? If you honestly believe someone's in imminent danger, you would pull them aside and lovingly tell them, hey, listen, I care about you. I've got to tell you about something. Isn't that, shouldn't that be how simple our, our approach is with the gospel? Why do we uh, make it into a big, a big thing, like a project for ourselves, and think about it too much? If you care about someone, tell them the truth. Right? So put those two things together right there. I mean, God commanded everyone, commands everyone to repent because there's a judgment looming on the horizon. Paul goes on to describe his own personal evangelism in Acts 20.21. 20, so look at Acts 20.21. 20, <clears throat> this is Paul's description of how he evangelized most everybody because he includes everybody in this statement. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's pattern, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously this was an important part of Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told people the whole story without holding back so they wouldn't be left in the dark, thinking they might be okay somehow on their own. And that's what we do to people if we give half the gospel, so to speak. We give them the impression that they might be okay on their own somehow. They might even be good enough on their own somehow. For someone to be saved, there must be a transfer of trust to Christ alone. Just think about that for a minute. I was walking the other day, and this is kind of what God put on my soul, almost like a, a picture, you know, um, and a, a visual example. For someone to be saved, there must be a transfer of trust to Christ alone. And that implies that if they're not trusting in Christ, they're trusting in something or someone else. Everyone is, whether they realize it or not. Unless someone sees that they shouldn't trust in themselves or their church, or their religion to save them, then they're not going to transfer their trust to Christ alone to be saved. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a transfer of trust, and that's why, you know, it says repent or turn. You're turning from one thing to another. If, if people don't see, if you don't help them see that they shouldn't trust in themselves... Well, there's no impetus. There's no, there's no reason to turn to Christ in humility. I'll keep up with my religion just in case. I'll go to church just in case. But I don't need to surrender my soul to Christ. I mean, I'm a good person. They're going to remain stuck in a false concept of salvation usually an attempt to save themselves by their own goodness or religiosity. So again, look at what Paul, the apostle of grace, actively preached while evangelizing people. Turn to Acts 26, 19. 
Acts 26, 19. And I know we've been through some of these verses over the last few years. And it's good if some of this sounds familiar, but the Spirit's kind of putting some things together, as you're going to see uh, as we go on and then on Sunday, too. Again, Acts 26, 19. Paul said, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Whoa. Wait a minute. Isn't that a little legalistic? Blasphemy, some modern Christians would say. If you or I said that, the hyper-grace Christian would say, you're being legalistic. Well, look at the big picture, folks. When someone really believes in something, they actually follow it, right? What did Paul say? Look again. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Paul said that. The apostle of grace. That's what the apostle Paul actively preached when sharing the gospel. Some Christians today would be appalled at that. But that right there is where the rubber meets the road in a person's soul. Confronted with the truth. That it's a real decision, for example. And Paul was basically telling people not to deceive themselves in any way. He was being totally honest with them. This is what it looks like. This is what salvation looks like. Some Christians don't want to bring up sin when preaching the gospel, believing it's not the way of grace. And I'll tell you what I think happened is the church got watered down over the last 50 to 100 years into this system of thinking where don't bring up sin or you'll sound legalistic. When it's really the attitude behind it that could make it legalistic. It's not bringing up sin. I mean, not going to tell someone the truth. So some Christians don't want to bring up sin when preaching the gospel because they think it's against grace. But it is not gracious to hold back the very reason someone needs to receive the grace of God. Remember this, our Lord was full of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, we're not going to turn there, but you probably know the verses. John 1, 14 and 17. The Lord Jesus was full of grace and truth. And this is also how Jesus himself preached the gospel. I was thinking about it. If Jesus preached all grace, they probably would not have hung him on a cross. Because when you teach someone all grace without truth, you let them do what they want. You don't confront them about the truth or what they might be doing or thinking wrong, wrongly. He preached grace and truth in an uncompromising way, in a gentle, loving way, but he never compromised the truth. So he's our great example in preaching the gospel. How many things did Jesus say that were extremely direct, yet usually with gentleness, but extremely direct, extremely truthful, out of his tremendous love for his creation? If people aren't fully aware of the serious problem that they have before their creator, then why would they repent at all? And Jesus knew that. He knew a lot. <laughs> he understood that, even as a human being. And so if you don't need to repent or have anything to repent from, why would you look for a savior, honestly? As William Booth you may have heard of him. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. He stated the following before his death in 1912. Now just think about that, okay? 
He said this before his death in 1912 on the board. The chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Looks like he hit them all on the head, doesn't it? He said that before 1912. And that is a, you'd almost think someone just described our society because they're living in it. They described it from experience. So apparently Mr. Booth had the gift of discernment or prophecy. This here on the board is unfortunately where a lot of Christian churches find themselves today they're unwilling to tell people the whole truth so that they might turn to Christ from the heart and not in pretense. They're unwilling. They even think they're, they're violating the truth when they're really just telling half of the truth. For example, why are many churches today teaching forgiveness without repentance? That's one of the things Mr. Booth mentions here, right? Why are many churches today teaching forgiveness without repentance? Heck, I used to do it. I know a lot of you used to do it. It's like skipping a step so as not to offend anybody. And they end up denying people the opportunity for true freedom by surrendering to God and turning to Christ in humility. They deny people an opportunity for true freedom, which only comes from surrender. I know it's an oxymoron. It's like against what we would think, right? How do you get freedom by surrendering? It's the only way. God's ways are not our ways. So for example, regarding this principle of forgiveness without repentance, in one passage about the Great Commission, Jesus makes it clear how forgiveness comes. And this one I put on the board for you because I like the New American Standard updated version in Luke 24, 45 through 48. It says, Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So part of the great commission that we are to obey is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's part of the whole story. And the apostles understood this truth and they actually followed, check that out, they actually followed what Jesus said to do. And even a matter of days later, by the way, because this statement on the board in Luke 24, after the resurrection, before the ascension, his ascension into heaven, and then the day of Pentecost was upon them and they were preaching the gospel. In Acts 2.38, for example, go to Acts 2.38. <clears throat> I was thinking the other day, what a whirlwind life must have been for the apostles for the three years they were with Jesus. I mean, three years is not a long time. And every day, they learned something new, not just by instruction, but by experience. They saw something new. They heard something new. They learned something new. Every day, wild things happening in front of their eyes, healings left and right, left and right for three years. It must have been like a dizzying, almost a surreal type of experience. And then he was gone. And then he came back. And he said, this is how you're going to do it. Right? So the apostles, to their credit, obeyed the way Jesus said to uh, give the gospel. So look at Acts 2.38. Now this is Peter in his evangelizing. And notice the order given. Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just notice the order. Repent, be baptized, receive forgiveness of sins. Look at Acts 3.19. Acts 3.19. We just saw what Jesus said in Luke 24. Great commission. This is how you guys are going to go do it and be my witnesses. And days later, Peter was saying this stuff to large groups of Jews who mistook Christ for who he really is. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. So again, just notice the order. Repentance comes before forgiveness of sins. And then look at Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The implication is that if God doesn't first give repentance to someone, and notice it's God that gives it, if God doesn't first give repentance to someone, then they will not receive forgiveness of sins. So let's simplify this by looking at a real-life example of forgiveness before we move on to the law and how even Jesus used it in evangelizing. Let's look at a real-life example of forgiveness or, or lesson, instruction even, about forgiveness. For example, how does a person experientially forgive someone else if they refuse to apologize? How does a person experientially forgive someone else if they refuse to apologize? Just think about that. Now, hopefully, we as believers, we carry forgiveness with us in our hearts regardless, Okay. That's what we should do and need to do through the power of Christ. But what about both parties experiencing forgiveness? You know that peace that comes between two parties when there's a finally an apology and an acceptance of that apology? You know that peace that's it's actually like indescribable? I could try to explain it, right? But you know what I'm talking about. There's this big relief when it's finally done and that interaction takes place. So... Turn to uh, Luke 17, verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3. Even Jesus said it. This is how it works. This is how it works. And he's describing here how it works with man, man to man. And so it works between God and man also. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Do you see the order? Jesus said this, and this is how life works, according to God. Unbelievers... So come back to evangelism, right? Unbelievers won't experience forgiveness in their own lives until they repent towards God and place their trust in the Lord Jesus to save them. We just read that. Paul said that. I'm not saying that. Paul said that in Acts 20, 21. Repent towards God and trust in Jesus. That's the biblical fact of the matter. That's the biblical way to forgiveness. The evangelism example that we're about to see in this mini-series is connected with the fact that, on the board, regarding effective evangelism, God's law should be used as an impetus to help people see their need for the Savior. God's law should be used as an impetus to help people see their need for the Savior. We might say God's moral law, as seen in the Ten Commandments, um, it's called the law, right? 
capital L. It's not just called the list of guidelines to live your life by. It's called the law. So whenever there's a law, there's a breaking of the law in view, right? So we should picture our judge in heaven and that justice does need to be served eventually with a holy God. But those Ten Commandments for right living before God should be rightly used to humble people to the point of true repentance. It is possibly the best tool in your tool bag for effective evangelism. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, is that biblical? Aren't we under grace? Amen, right? At least we believers are under grace. What are the unbelievers under? Think about that for a minute. What are unbelievers still under if they're still unbelievers? The Bible says condemnation and wrath. According to Jesus and John the Baptist in John 3.18 and John 3.36. So it is extremely gracious to tell people the truth and to not beat around the bush to protect your own reputation with them. Preventing people from seeing the whole truth in the process. So we see the biblical nature of this approach uh, in a moment. I want to give you one more quote from Charles Spurgeon, who agreed with this idea of using the law in evangelism. And he was a pastor uh, who was very eager not only to teach the people, but he was also very eager to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So look what he said years ago. I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. An interesting analogy. Now, obviously, God is the one who does this type of work within the human heart. We're merely planters and waterers, as in 1 Corinthians 3. But taking his analogy, shouldn't we plant and water the best way we know how? Shouldn't we plant and water the most biblical way that we can? Because what we're going to see is that even the Lord himself used the Ten Commandments to lead people to repentance. To gently bring people to a realization of their need for him as their Savior. And we recall at this point that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, that's Romans 2.4. 2, Why don't we turn there to Romans 2.4 just to see that with our eyes. Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So this is not to say Jesus didn't do so with great gentleness and kindness. But he told the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He was full of grace and truth. <clears throat> of course, we want to do it in love. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, do you take his kindness for granted, not realizing that he's being kind to you, so that you come along to repentance, to a change of mind about who you are and what your need is? Remember when the Lord had dinner with the prostitutes and tax collectors, he was not sitting there condoning their sin, saying it's no big deal because God loves you. That's what many hyper-grace people might say. But the Bible says he was leading sinners to repentance. In Luke 5, 32. He was leading sinners to repentance. Why? Well, we just saw without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sins. So that's a pretty important aspect, huh? 
Without repentance, therefore, there's also no need to come to a genuine faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, verse 28. Matthew 21, 28. <clears throat> Without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sin. So the Lord knew this and he led people to repentance. Look at this parable, uh, Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. There's one of the definitions for repentance. He changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. There, my friends, is repentance and faith. The tax collectors and prostitutes had it. The Pharisees remained stubborn. Even though the prostitutes and tax collectors sinned against God, they eventually acknowledged they were wrong and changed their minds and believed in Christ to be saved. Look how the NIV puts it on the board in Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Without repentance, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Maybe we should follow the Lord's example in reaching people with the gospel, leading sinners to repentance. So here's one of our main points in this lesson on effective evangelism. In his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sin against God, which is kind of the first step to turning to him as Savior. Matthew 5, 17 through 30, for example, Luke 18, 18 through 20, and John 4, 16 through 18, which we saw last week with the woman at the well. Uh, so on that note, turn to uh, John 4, verse 13. <clears throat> we'll start with this example. Again, the point is that in his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sin against God. And in John 4, with the woman at the well, which, by the way, um, I probably had five different sources, uh, different people, different sources that I was reading, whatever, talk about the woman at the well in the last week. So apparently God wants us to absorb this example and learn from it as much as we can. But in John 4, Jesus alluded to her living in adultery, which we haven't gotten to yet in our lessons last week. And this, I'm sure, tweaked her conscience, besides the fact that he knew all about her many husbands before that. So look at John 4, verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She obviously didn't get it yet. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So Jesus brought up adultery with great gentleness and tact, as probably only he can do it. But he is our example to follow. He brought up a breaking of the commandments to get her attention, possibly. With great gentleness and tact, Jesus reaches her conscience through the law she had broken, humbling her and helping her seek him as Savior. The key word is helping her. He's helping her see her need for a Savior. So one point here is that a healthy fear of God is a very good thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing for someone to you know, truly seek a Savior, right? wow, I I actually need to be saved. I actually am in trouble. A healthy fear of God is a very good thing. And that's where the breaking of God's law is very valuable for a person to understand and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's look at another example in uh, Matthew 5. You can go to Matthew 5, 17. In Matthew 5, Jesus brings up breaking the commandments against murder and adultery. And he makes it even more convicting by letting us know that when we've even just intended those things in our hearts, we are still guilty in God's eyes because God looks at the heart. So who's innocent now, right? That's the question. Jesus is going beyond a shadow of a doubt. Oh, you don't think you've committed these sins? Oh, you haven't murdered anybody? Oh, let's see. Hold on a second. Look at Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So right there, anyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of murder. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, the point on the board, in his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sin against God, to humble people. Any honest man will admit he cannot keep these righteous commands perfectly. And this will cause him to reach out to our God and Savior for mercy. In Luke 18, which is our other example on the board, uh, we won't turn there tonight, but we see a man who wasn't willing to be honest about this. The rich man, the rich young ruler. Jesus spoke to him and mentioned the commandments to hopefully lead him to humility and bowing the knee before Christ. Unfortunately, he didn't respond. But Jesus used the commandments to try to lead sinners to repentance. So if the Lord used the law to show people their sinfulness and helplessness, why don't we as believers do the same to help them along to see the truth of the matter? The Apostle Paul, 
the Apostle of Grace, also wrote about the value of the law in evangelism. So we just saw Jesus' examples of using the law to get people's attention. And the Apostle Paul explained about the value of the law in evangelism. Turn to uh, Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19. <clears throat> And we're not going to read all of Romans 3, but this passage is right after Paul says there is none righteous, not even one. Look what he says in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now, what, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So notice two things there. In verse 19, the law is brought up so that every mouth may be stopped. And in verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So think about this for a minute. If someone doesn't know they've broken a law, even in the secular realm. Why would they be convicted to turn from it or to show remorse? It's almost silly to expect them to be remorseful if they don't even think they've broken a law. People need to know the reality of that situation. The problem is Satan and his world system has done an excellent job convincing people that they aren't all that bad and even things that are wrong are okay or even right. He's done a great job doing that in our society. And people are really deceived because they're reversing everything. So if you don't think you've broken the law, why do you need God's mercy? Look on the board what Isaiah said in uh, Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does this not describe our world today? Why does this reality exist right now in our society? Why is that an accurate description of probably the majority of our society? Because lies have been pounded into our souls by Satan's world system, by the media, for example, to prevent us from recognizing evil, to prevent us from seeing that we have broken God's law and we need his mercy if we want to be saved from our sins. So we see one function of God's law in Romans 3 is to stop the mouth, to stop the mouth from justifying itself. You ever say to somebody, maybe especially like maybe a teenager or someone who's just rambling on and justifying everything, do you ever say to them, stop it, just stop justifying yourself, right? Stop talking. You don't realize the, the hole you're getting yourself into, right? Or how you're, you're totally justifying something that's wrong into being right. Well, the law does that for us. The law stops the mouth. I've seen it with my own eyes, and it's, it's awesome. Because before using the law, I didn't know how to get someone to pay attention or to be humble when, when hearing the gospel. So the wonderful thing about the law is that it stops the mouth. It stops self-justification in its tracks. And through the law comes a very vital knowledge of one's sin against God. So ask yourself this as we begin to close. If a person doesn't come to realize they have personally sinned against and offended God, why would they look to God for mercy? Personally. Okay, you could tell someone that everyone's a sinner, we're all sinners, all you want. Do they personally believe it? that they themselves have offended God. Until they come to that point, they're probably not going to turn to God for mercy. So on the board, regarding effective evangelism, the law and a man's conscience are two of our best friends in witnessing to others about Christ. Utilize them. Jesus did, the apostles did. Utilize them. And it's simple. 
And if you do it in gentleness, it's not even offensive whatsoever. I've got the chance to do it many times. It's not even offensive. It doesn't put people on the defensive if you do it with gentleness and love. Again, if there's an oncoming train coming, you might want to pull them over and say, hey, you might want to get off the tracks because it'll be here in an hour, right? You pull them aside in love because you care about them. So again, look at Romans 3.19. Are you still in Romans 3.19? Okay. Let's read this one more time. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, the point on the board, the law and man's conscience are two of our best friends in witnessing to others about Christ. You could be talking to an atheist, but his conscience knows what's wrong and right. And when you bring these things up, it will be twinged. Whether or not they listen to you in the moment is one thing, but they will have to think about it by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So understanding God's law and that we couldn't keep it all is what acted as our tutor that led us to Christ. If you think about it, that's what the Bible says. Paul says the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. We can call on the law as a tutor in leading others to Christ who are unaware of their dire situation. Here's something else Paul wrote about this in Galatians 3.21 through 24 in the New American Standard updated. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. I love that phrase. Love it. Just like the other verse, right? Stop the mouth. The scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Unless someone is shut up by the scripture, by the law, under sin, unless they realize their guilt, they are not going to receive the promise of eternal life through Christ. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Notice the order again. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without some kind of repentance in somebody's heart, there's no turning to Christ placing their trust in him to be saved. Hopefully this all makes sense more and more, and hopefully you see the biblical way to use the law as a tool to lead people to Christ. As we go into this holiday season and we see people we love, but maybe we don't see that often, and we might have a special one-on-one -on -one opportunity at some point. We might make a special one-on-one -on -one opportunity by pulling someone aside and just telling them what's coming. So at this point, as we close, I'm just going to uh, introduce the real-life uh, example that I'm going to get into more on Sunday. Uh, and this will illustrate using the law to close people's mouths so they will actually humbly listen to their need for the Savior. And I want to remind you, this is all done in the gentleness and love of Christ. That is very important. Without love, we are nothing, as we know in 1 Corinthians 13. The only time Jesus got angry was with those who were arrogant and wouldn't listen. Right? He got angry with the Pharisees and the lawyers because they were arrogant. Otherwise, he operated in the gentleness that he was well known for. And again, it's the kindness of God that leads man to repentance. So back to our real-life example uh, as you might know, some of us do surveys in, in the, the park or the mall uh, for the church and um, bring up certain questions that lead people to a discussion. So we're going to call this segment, when we get into it on Sunday, we're going to call it just another walk in the park. 
But there's two reasons for that. One is obvious because this encounter takes place in a public park. The other one is not too obvious, and that is that we shouldn't make that big a deal out of such encounters. We do it to ourselves. We get ourselves all spun up about what we're going to say and how we're going to say it and when we're going to say it. We do that to ourselves. This should be, if, you have, if we have the right heart that I've been saved and I care about others and I, and I just want to make sure people understand the truth, this should be just another walk in the park every time we share the gospel. It shouldn't be this project that we make it. But that's an, an issue and a matter of our own heart before God and continuing to grow in the love of God. So the point is that this should be our norm as believers living in the world. Um, to witness for Christ, that's why we're here. That's why we're left behind until the day of redemption. And it's who we are and it's what we do. It's that simple. If something is who you are and what you do, it comes naturally, doesn't it? It comes without pressure or uh, trying to structure everything. If it becomes you, if I am a witness for Christ, that's who I am, then it comes out naturally. And that's the point we all got to keep growing into, because that's how God wants it to be for us as we spread the word. So we should have a desire to see people saved. I know many of you do. And we should have a desire to help them see their need for Christ. And that will make these experiences more, quote unquote, normal to us. Just another walk in the park, so to speak. So after asking a person's background and basic beliefs, such as where they're from and what religion they grew up in, the key question we hope to get to is this. And you can get to these questions with anybody at any time, really. It just depends on, you know, how the conversation goes. So just another walk in the park. Here's, here's what you want to get to with somebody. If you were to die tonight, where are you going and why? Just have a real conversation with them. Like, seriously, what do you think? You could be talking to an atheist. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. I, I want to know what you think. What do you think happens when we die? And why? Why do you, th why do you think that? Do you have any, like, you know, evidence? Did, did, is there evidence? Is there even scientific evidence of where we go when we die? Besides our body in the grave? Or you might like the question, do you believe there's an afterlife? It's a little less direct, right? Some people don't want to talk about death or don't want to hear about death, maybe. Do you believe there's an afterlife? Where do, you, where do you honestly think you're going after? I'm just curious what you think. And there's your open door. And you can arrive at this question in all sorts of ways, even through casual conversation at first. You might just be talking about how difficult life can be, right? And you might just say, hey, what do you think's next? What do you think's next? Think there's some hope? And you might simply ask someone, do you believe there's an afterlife? Why are these questions so important? Because it lets you know where they stand before you go on. It tells you a lot. And it'll tell you what to say next. Instead of you giving the gospel to someone that is thinking about something else. So you ask that question. Do you think there's an afterlife? Where do you think you're going? And that'll tell you everything you need to know and let the Spirit guide you to tell them the truth in the way they need to hear it. I'm going to give you on Sunday a specific example, like a more detailed conversation and pattern that I've been using. But this question on the board, one of these two questions, can open the door nice and wide and it'll tell you exactly where to go. If you're here, if you've been listening to the Word of God and learning the Word of God for any amount of time, you know the gospel. You know it. So what to say will come. You know it. As long as you know it, it's going to come out what needs to be said to that person. But I suggest asking one of these questions to open the door nice and wide and then uh, let the Spirit do His work. And then on Sunday, we'll get into a specific example of a conversation and uh, you can take from it what you want and use what you want. So that all in mind. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much 
for this time to consider your word under the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all the examples you give us in Scripture of effective evangelism and using the law even in that process to put people in the right frame of mind, to even stop the mouth, as your word says, so that they're actually able to listen to the good news. Father, we thank you so much just for the opportunity to spread your word and to bring you glory and to bring more into your kingdom. We ask that you bless us this Thanksgiving holiday and that we just sit back and be appreciative and thankful of all you've done for us. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.